Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. This is Tom Salemi. Thanks for joining us. This is part two of my conversation with Emmett Cunningham, the founding co-chair of OIS. Uh, We continued, or excuse me, started this conversation last week and began reviewing uh, Emmett's year-in-review presentation, which he gives at OIS at AAO, and we have available at OIS.net. But Emmett goes above and beyond and expands his uh, presentation, adds slides, covers more information, and, and mentions more companies. So what we did is uh, we made the uh, presentation available on OIS.net. We also sent it out via OIS Weekly, and uh, we're posting a link on the podcast page of this week's podcast and last week's podcast. So you have many, many opportunities to uh, get this great information for yourself. We are rather, Emmett and I talked about the presentation. We didn't go slide by slide, but rather covered the larger themes so last week, if you haven't listened to last week's podcast, start with that one and then uh, and then restart this one. In this week's episode, we'll talk a bit about um, reimbursement. Emmett will talk about his companies to watch, which companies he thinks are, uh, are generating uh, real news or will be generating real news in the coming weeks. And we also talked a bit about um, his views as a VC, what, what the financing market is like what the exiting opportunities are. We talked about uh, IPOs and M&As. So last week was more of a clinical conversation. This one focuses a bit more on business. Together, you'll get a great overview of ophthalmology. So we hope you joined us last week. Thank you for joining us this week. Let's get into this conversation with Emmett Cunningham. Well, Emmett Cunningham, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Nice to chat with you. You too. And it was great to see you at OIS at AAO. You talked a bit about uh, Allergan's uh, ongoing phase three trial with Artemis and, and just glaucoma in, in, in general. I mean, the, 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 the many different ways. I was, I was intrigued by uh, the neuro stem company that was up on, uh, on stage to, uh, that, that was presenting technology to, to treat glaucoma. We seem to be coming at glaucoma from, from many different directions now, which, which is exciting. Talk a bit about Allegan's move into the phase three trials, and uh, in how, how do you feel about the glaucoma space overall? Again, it, we're, we're coming at it from a lot of different directions. Yeah, so a couple things. First, you know, I can't cover everything in <laughs> 15 minutes. I haven't, so I, I, I always feel terrible that I leave out companies, and I, as you can imagine, I get emails after the fact of how, how dare you leave out <laughs> our company. Usually not stated how dare you, but it, it would have been nice to uh, sort of thing. And so I try to make up for some of that in the expanded deck where I have more time uh, to, to comment on some of these. There are two aspects to glaucoma. Uh, there's pressure reduction, which we've talked a little bit about, and the importance of both the magnitude of the reduction and the, the new sort of mechanism, since it's a often, most often, or I guess I should just say often, it's a combination therapy approach. And so we feel very comfortable combining uh, agents of different um, mechanisms, but you know we don't typically combine two agents that attack the same target. So new mechanisms are very important. Um, the other 
huge glaucoma, and it extends beyond glaucoma, actually, is neuroprotection, and that is protecting these vulnerable cells that seem to be dying. In the sense of setting of glaucoma, it's the ganglion cells, but in dry MD, for example, it's, it's um, you know, the RPE and then consequently the photoreceptors and the cryocapillaris. So we already have approaches to neuroprotection in cases where we're going after dry MD, that they are neuroprotection approaches, and, and now we're extending that to the retinal ganglion cells in glaucoma. And and the point that was made early in the day was that when, when that's wedded with gene therapy approaches toward that, it's going to be really transformative. And so that's that, I think, will be a really exciting thing. The first, the, the vanguard of that is Neurotech's uh, sustained release of CNTF. They have phase one, two data. That data appears to have a drug effect. And my understanding is that that company is advancing uh, that program along with a you know, a treatment for macular teoinjectasis, which is an orphan indication using the same the same platform. The issue with that with that platform is that it's it's a non trivial CMC approach, right? It's a it's a it's a device which has these encapsulated cells. It's um, it's it's not like making a small molecule and, and just sort of putting it in a bottle that has a two year shelf life. Um, but but that still has promise, and there are other sort of gene therapy-based approaches to to neuroprotection that are advancing behind that that I think will be very exciting. The other the other big portion of glaucoma is taking the pressure reduction from a, a daily dosing, you know, hopefully once or twice a day, to a sustained release. We've seen lots of that, and the the most advanced there is the Allergan's Artemis Phase Three trials, which is a bimatopro sustained release, which there. It's an intracameral delivery for patients uh, to, who have uh, ocular hypertension or open-angle glaucoma so that they can get sustained pressure reduction. We know compliance is a huge issue for these patients. You know, up to 80% over time stop taking their drops. And so there's a lot of promise for that as well. And that, I think, will open up a lot in this space. There are many other companies behind the Argan that are hopeful to go after that. And glaucoma, of course, is is becoming a real center point and has been for for the device areas in ophthalmology. And the company I referenced earlier was EBS Technologies, which is, is doing work in glaucoma as well through through a narrow stem. But we've had a lot of success with some of the, the MIGS devices. Um, can you talk a bit about some of the the recent approvals in MIGS, perhaps Zangel, and and what other uh, devices of interest you're seeing in ophthalmology? Yeah, I think uh, I think MIGS is huge. I've said that in the past. Uh, it's uh, you know the the they won't all have the same degree of pressure reduction, and so that you know it'll some some devices will be more appropriate for patients with milder forms of, of ocular hypertension, glaucoma than 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 some of the subsequent approval devices. Broadly speaking, they're either ab internal or ab external. The ab internal sort of redirects fluid either through the trabecular meshwork better or through the um, the uh, ileoscleral space, suprachoroidal space, the ab external directs fluid to the subconjunctival space. And, and generally speaking, you can get greater pressure reduction with ab external approaches. They also tend to be a, a little more um, sort of technically at, uh, demanding, not, not hugely so, nothing like a trabeculectomy or, or tube placement. But there's a continuum there, and um, I think it's a matter of training. Doctors will, I think, become very comfortable with both approaches. The, to me, the, the main point is that they work. It's clear, they clearly work. They will, we'll see multiple approvals here. It'll really expand the armamentarium for patients and approaches to lowering pressure to, to what we all agree is the sweet spot, which is about 12 to 14 millimeters for most patients. And 
that all of them, well, even the ones that I said are perhaps a little, little bit more technically demanding, the, these ab externals, they are not that technically demanding. It's not like doing a trabeculectomy or putting in a filtering tube that has a, a relatively high failure rate. So major advances will be coming for the sort of surgical approach to glaucoma. And, and then we will see after that people either coding or adding to these uh, you know, reservoirs that slowly release pressure-reducing agents. We'll see what I already said, which are sort of drug-device combinations of uh, sustained-release pressure-reducing agents. It's, it's a good time to be in glaucoma and to be, taking, to be taking care of those patients because we're going to have lots to offer them, I think. And we're we're pleased to have a presentation by Minosis up there. The Zepto is uh, is moving forward. Um, what's your why is that uh, that that it's getting so much uh, attention and so much popularity? It's obviously an important product. What is what is the significance of Zepto? I think it's a couple of things. First, um, I mentioned it because uh, the company has presented a few times at OIS, and I, I think it's nice to have uh, sort of closure on where they've been. Um, it is a, a novel and simple uh, device to do what is an important step in cataract surgery, create this capsule rectus. It, it can often be uh, challenging, even for the best surgeon. Sometimes it gets away from you and, and isn't made correctly. Uh, and, and that's important to be able to take out the lens and to put in a lens without, without complications. Uh, the other thing that John Hendrick, the CEO, would uh, probably like to tell me and remind me, he has reminded me, is they didn't take, I don't think they took venture capital money. So you know, he did this very efficiently. As you know, we take our pound of flesh. So he, he did it very efficiently, and he's very proud of that. So, um, And I have to say kudos to him and his team for doing it. So, yeah, they're moving forward into a launch, and we'll, we'll see. I'm sure they'll do fine. Fantastic. And one thing you did in the presentation, which I don't know if you've done before, and this is available in the video, but it's in the expanded presentation as well, is you, you kind of picked out your companies to watch. We have our companies to watch on the website, but you have your own companies to watch, ones that you think will be generating some news. So what were the ones that uh, – what is that process like to put that together? And uh, you know, what, how big is the list that you start with that you eventually whittle down to the number you get? Yeah, to be perfectly transparent um, – it's it was it some of it is my attempt to mention companies that thematically didn't fit well with other areas that I uh, I did mention. For example, I think Graybug is a company to watch. Um, uh, I think InFocus and which was acquired by Santan is a company to watch or a technology to watch. I think there are things that I and and obviously the angiopotent inhibitors are, are things we should watch. I've mentioned all those earlier, and so I I put in this section things that I didn't have an opportunity to mention in earlier sections and which I thought had the potential to be uh, transformative. Uh, the first I mentioned were, was Viewpoint and its, uh, its uh, pharmacologic approach to lens clarification and potentially to presbyopia. So they have a, a sterile-based compa compound that, that disaggregates the um, crystalline, which is what aggregates and, and causes cataract, and we think hardens the lens and prevents accommodation. And they've, they showed, they've showed some time ago that it, it works in in cadaveric lenses and in um, murine models, and, and now they've rep they've sort of replicated the efficacy and extended it, I would say, um, to a canine model. And so that, to me, is very, very exciting. I, I, I should say that I'm on the board of that company, and so um, while I have a, a better view into it than many, I'm also you know, somewhat conflicted in that I am on the board. But I truly believe it's a it's a huge, potentially huge advance, and all one has to do is look at Novartis and the deal they did with Encore Vision for their topical um, drug for presbyopia to see that it's a very, very important 
market, uh, unaddressed market. All right, we're going to take a quick break from this conversation with Emmett to uh, remind you that we're going to be producing content. We've started producing content from OIS at AAO. We're sending out the company presentations to you via email, via our OIS weekly newsletter, over social media channels. Uh, they're all available. They'll also be up there on OIS.net. So if you missed a conversation or missed a presentation at OIS at AAO, fear not. We have them all recorded, and they're all available to you. They were great. The day was great, and you should definitely check them out. Now let's get back into this conversation with Emmett Cunningham. And are there any more companies that uh, perhaps should have made the list or you'd like to at least mention in the in the podcast and people will see in the presentation? So, yeah, I, I mentioned um, Aura, A-U-R-A, um, in my talk at the meeting, and it's an extended deck. So Aura has a uh, novel um, therapeutic. It's a, it's a viral nanoparticle conjugate that is binds to tumor cells and is laser activated to kill the tumor cells. They have a novel therapeutic for ocular melanoma. Uh, as you know, the current standard of care is radiologic, so we, we take a plaque, uh, we, we surgery, surgically attach it to the eye, we treat the tumor for a certain time, we repeat the surgery to remove the plaque, and then we follow the patient over years. And a very high proportion of those patients develop complications from the radiation. So it's a big procedure, lots of morbidity over time, and this appears to be a, a very novel and less toxic, less damaging approach to ocular melanoma. They're, they're just into their phase one, two study. Uh, we didn't have at the time, but Carol Shields presented at AAO the early results, which seemed quite promising. Again, I think they're, they're low on the therapeutic uh, dose, dose ranging. They're not quite at their therapeutic level yet in that phase one, two trial, but even there they're seeing a drug effect. And in the, in the mice, they saw that very pronounced um, necrotizing and tumor size reduction effect. So that, I think, is a company to watch and will have much more results over the next 6 to 12 months. Um, The other one that I I mentioned uh, in the extended deck, I didn't have time to include in the talk, but again, (laughs) I probably could have and should have, uh, was a potential first-in-class pharmacotherapy for regmatogenous retinal detachment. And it's really yet another approach to neuroprotection, and this is ONL Therapeutics FAST, uh, FAST inhibitor, uh, which blocks ret- retinal cell death. Uh, again, I, I I think I just have a sense that neuroprotection is interesting. could also perhaps be relevant to dry AMD. But um, they were the ones I'd mentioned. And again, I didn't mention them in my talk, and they're not in the expanded deck, but I'm all things in gene therapy I'm watching very closely. So Nightstar, Gensite, uh, those are companies that we should look very carefully at. Um, very uh, big market opportunities. And, uh, you know, that is that is why in my talk I mentioned under reimbursement we have to start thinking about that. Uh, reimbursement is, is going to be the core issue for these therapies that are given once or once every multiple years, three years, five years. You know, how are we going to think about charging for them? It's a big issue, and I, I've added a number of slides that I've gleaned from my review of the literature that speak on reimbursement. The issue is really not yet clear, or I should say it's evolving, because we've, we're, at least for those therapies that have already been approved, where we see that they're morphing from a one-time payment to a pay-for-performance. Either either there's a delayed payment to to verify that there's been a response or that there's a sort of an annuity that comes back as the response durability is continued. I think it's going to be a little different for each um, drug and for each indication, but it is clear that I I don't think the payers are just going to pay a million dollars or half a million dollars 
for each patient once, sort of set it and forget it. They're going to want to pay for performance. And how will it influence what you do, venture capital and investing? I mean, as, we, as you look forward, as you look, and you know, we can talk a bit about exits and AMOs and, and M&As later on, but um, what, is your, what is your general sense of the, the, the state of venture in ophthalmology? I guess we can break it down both into the drugs and devices. You do have those numbers in there. Um, we can You can review them both, but let's talk drugs first. Do you, do you see a, a stable market for venture capital investing in startups? Do you see it dipping up or down? What's your, uh, what's your overall take? Yeah, I think the, I think venture investing in biotech broadly has been strong and it continues to be strong. It's rewarded. The exits are there. Uh, the, um, the co- companies are willing to partner and or acquire private companies that have clear and meaningful advances on the biotech side. So, that the model is still there and it still works very well. It works particularly well in oncology and rare and orphan diseases um, because the um, society has said we're willing to pay for those diseases and we're not. There's not a lot of price pressure and 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 by the way, there's not a huge number of patients and so they don't break the bank typically. Um, in addition, and I've added this to the expanded deck, the FDA has has moved to accelerate those approvals specifically. And I think that has to do with the advocacy groups that push those through the agencies, both on the oncology side and the rare and orphan indication side. Um, ophthalmology benefits from some of that because many of the gene therapies are um, rare and orphan. And we, I talked about oral, which is a, an oncology indication, which uh, could benefit from some of that acceleration. So it benefits to some extent, but not as much as those direct indications do. Biotech is strong. The device side... Um, has been under under pressure for several years now. I think uh, three, four, or five years. And and the point I made in the, my presentation is that all overall device investing was down, and in particular seed or early stage device investing was down uh, across venture and, and including in ophthalmology. And the reason for that is that it's it's very expensive, almost as expensive as for drug development. It's very expensive to get things to approval and to a commercial launch. And yet these products tend to address a a very small fraction of what would be a drug market. So we think of a a breakthrough big big market drug as a billion-dollar drug. There are very few billion-dollar devices. There are $100 million devices, $300 million devices. And if it costs the same to get them to a point, and by the way, if the device companies say we don't only want phase two, but we want approval and commercial launch, it just gets to be very challenging. Um, we saw a great success with Clocos, but you know they didn't depend on, a, on an acquisition. They 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 were bene- they were fortunate to be able to benefit from what was a very um, active public market at the time, and so we're able to get out to support their commercial activities and their continued launch. So. I think I can't see an easy solution on the device side, which um, saddens me. I, I think there are important devices that are in that sort of early stage of development that I'd like to see be advanced, but it's a challenge for them. They have to think of uh, you know even more creative financing alternatives, which which can be problematic. Well, what are M and A deals looking like in in both drugs and devices? Are, are, is there a commonality to some of the terms that are being negotiated? Um, some of the, the payouts for investors and for entrepreneurs. Uh, in the, on the I side, we had I don't know ten or so M and A events that I mentioned in my talk. About half of those were device, and half of those were were drug or pharma biotech. 
And so that was that's good. It's good for device. It's more device than we see across the sector broadly. Uh, I think um, it's usually about four to one exits generally across the sector, drug versus device. Um, it used to be said a couple of years ago that you know, many device companies were acquired straight up, whereas, whereas drug companies were sort of acquired with an upfront, but then contingent value payments, so-called contingent value payments. So as you hit subsequent milestones, be it phase three or approval or commercial milestones, you'd get additional payments, which would add up to a much larger number. And that was about 80% of the deals on the drug side. What we're seeing now on the device side is that they too are, are migrating toward that uh, structured financing. And it may be, maybe I'm hopeful that these companies are moving a little earlier, which sort of would justify some contingent value payments through approval, et cetera. Um, that would be good because that would help device development if they are moving earlier. But regardless, uh, we're seeing many more staged deals where we have a, an upfront plus payments based on milestones. And let's look at the IPO area for a second. We talked about Apellus early on that they were able to go out. Is that uh, obviously a good sign? But is it? Should we read anything more into that? That there's uh, some larger opening. Well, for Apellus, we should read that their data was uh, was convincing to the investors <laughs> who invested, and I think they have uh, they had a, a strong data set. They also have a non-ophthalmic indication, which I think bolstered the story in a sector complement and ambition that has some very big wins like Alexion. So that's them, but it. In a broader sense, it it says if you have a strong story, you can go public, and the public investors who are who generally have less visibility into the company and its specifics, you know, they only they only really get to see what management says or puts into their filings. They don't get like we do to sit on company boards and really scrub the data and and grill management. If you have a good story, you can go public. If you look at the numbers of companies that have gone public, it's clearly not 2014. Uh, We're drifting down on the number of public offerings. Um, Still a bit above where we were before 2008, Um, uh, you know, about where we were 2004 to 2007. So maybe that's sort of a mid-cycle range. But you know, it's not it's not exu- irrational exuberance, and it's not shut. It's about where it typically is mid-cycle, I would say. And, of course, we'll wrap up with, with this question or this conversation about the uh, the OIS index, which you've uh, had a, a big hand in, in helping to put together just the, the, the this, this effort to track ophthalmology's performance overall. And over the, the first 13 months, uh, it's, it's declined by 12.2%. So... I mean, it's not necessarily a positive sign for ophthalmology, but it's good, to, I think, to have something that, that measures this. What, was your, uh, what are your feelings about the first year of the OIS index, both, uh, both in its creation and its effectiveness as a tool, but also in the performance of the, stock that, the stocks that lie in it? Yeah, I, you know, this, I like the OIS index. It's nice that we've reached a critical point where we can have our own index with enough companies, or 30 or so, that are, are sort of contributing to this market movement in the sector of ophthalmology. Um, it's very, you have to be careful when you read into indices, because indices are, are manipulated so that they're not manipulated, if, if I may say that. So that, for example, we we um, discount the, the larger companies, uh, the Aries of the world, um, the Optotechs of the world, trying to so that they don't simply dominate the index. That said, when a company like Aerie, which has had a very good run, runs up, it has a muted impact on the index. If you look at the overall value of the index, it's actually up almost 25%. It went from 12.9 to 15.9 billion, despite the fact that it was nominally sort of flat to down a little bit. 
So, um, yes, and, and the converse is that if a big company has a real stumble like Optotech did with BDGF, it really impacts the index, which is what happened uh, last December. So I think it's informative. It, 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 it's, it's interesting and fun to watch. Um, it's nice that we have enough companies to put in it and watch, but uh, we have to be careful how we interpret it. The, the sector, the ophthalmology sector is, is doing well. It's strong. These 30 public companies have almost $16 billion in value. And as I hope we've seen from the private companies, both at OIS and in this talk, lots of innovation that's moving forward that's exciting. So I'm excited. I can't wait to see what, what we hear at the next OIS. Same here. It's a good, that's a good point to wrap up on. And uh, thanks for all the work you put into this presentation. We'll make sure it gets into many people's hands. And uh, appreciate the, uh, the uh, overview of ophthalmology. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you, Tom. Have a great holiday. All right, everyone, that's a wrap. Emmett Cunningham, thanks so much for all the work on OIS and on the year in review. It was great to sit down with you and talk about these highlights in ophthalmology. Uh, as I told you folks last week, we covered sort of the clinical areas. This week, we talked more about finances. If you listen to both, I think you're uh, walking away with a true and solid understanding of ophthalmology today, where it has been and where it is headed. So thanks again, Emmett, for all the uh, work you do. Thank you, OIS podcast listeners, for joining us. If you wouldn't mind doing a few favors for us, give us a ranking on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to this podcast. That does help others find the podcast. Do subscribe. If, you have, uh, if you're listening to us on an iPad or, or a phone, uh, you can find the subscribe button, sign up, and you'll have future podcasts sent directly to your listening device. You can also, of course, listen to us on OIS.net. That's another uh, easy way to find us. Just Google OIS podcast. Tell your friends about it. If they enjoy ophthalmology and innovation as much as you do, it'd be great to have them as part of the conversation. Let me know how I'm doing directly. Shoot me an email, tom at healthedg.com. That's the word health, followed by letters egy.com. Would love to hear about uh, potential guests, potential topics, anything you'd like to uh, to say, or just uh, shoot an email saying hello. Would uh, happy to respond to that as well. Finally, don't forget, we'll be sending out uh, our great content from OIS at AO, so keep an eye on your inbox. Go to OIS.net for our regular updates. Follow us on social media, OIS Tweets. You can also find me at, uh, at MedTechTom, and the OIS account is at OIS Tweets. So we are out there, and we'll be sending you great information from OIS at AAO. That's it, folks. Tune in next week for another great tale of innovation on the OIS podcast.